in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Our Bible study tonight is Psalm 50 from the book of the Psalms. The title of this psalm is a psalm of Asaph. Asaph wrote 12 psalms. So this, this is the first psalm of the 12 psalms composed by Asaph. Who is Asaph? Asaph was a Levite, son of Berechiah, a great singer and musician of David and Solomon's time. And the references are in front of you. He is mentioned with great respect in Nehemiah chapter 12. Also it was said about him that he sounded with symbols of brass. So he used symbols like the symbols that we are using, but symbols of brass. His band composed of his sons or companions, were also imminent in the days of David, as we le- learn from First Chronicles chapter 25. 1 Chronicles 25 verse 1 and 2 Chronicles 29 verse 30 add that Asaph was a prophet in his musical composition. So his musical composition was prophetic. Many times a prophet is called seer. Seer can see, has a vision. God let him see what other people cannot see. So Asaph also is called a seer. One on whom the Spirit of God rested and seems from his education, the natural talent to be well qualified to compose hymns or psalms in the honor of God. We don't know in which occasion this psalm was composed. Some believe that this psalm was composed in the pre-exile period before the children of Israel went to captivity, when Jerusalem existed in perfect of beauty. The main theme of this psalm is praise ungodly living is more important to God than external practices. Meaning, if we do external practices but we don't live godly life, then we will be hypocrites like the scribes and the Pharisees. We will be like the fig tree that had many, many leaves but no fruits, and the Lord cursed. It is false religion to focus only on the external practices without godly living. And false religion in general is a significant theme of the Old and New Testament. The prophets pronounced in the Old Testament judgment on those who claim to be faithful, but whose lives failed to live up to their claims. 
Also, the Lord Jesus Christ confronted the same problem with the scribe and Pharisees. This psalm is a solemn vision of the day of judgment, as if Asaph is making a picture for us about a day of judgment. And in this psalm, the Lord is represented as calling the whole earth to hear his declaration. He declares the nature of the worship which he accepts. What kind of worship God is expecting from us and what kind of worship God accepts from us. Also, he is looking for honest sacrifice of thanksgiving. And God also in this psalm outlined some of their sins, like rejecting instruction, robbery, adultery, evil, deceit, slander. And the psalm ends with God delivers a warning to those who have forgotten him. And he tells them how to achieve salvation. This psalm, we can say, deals with our duty toward God and our duty toward our neighbors. It addresses the nature of acceptable service, our duty toward God, and the obligation of social morality, that is, our duty toward our neighbors or others. This psalm is 23 verses. We can outline it like this. From verse 1 to 6, the mighty one, God and his judgment. From 7 to 15, the judgment of God against his people. 16 to 21, a rebuke for their disobedience to his commands. 21 and 22 and 23, Conclusion with a warning and a promise. Warning and a promise. So let's start from verse 1. The mighty one, God the Lord, has spoken and called the earth from the rising of the sun to its going down. So God is calling here everyone from the rising of the sun to its going down. So Asaph the psalmist began by referring to God in terms of utmost majesty, using several names in the scripture to refer to God. He used the three names, Mighty One, God, the Lord. And some observed that these three names, Mighty One, God, the Lord, have three distinctive accents said to them in the Hebrew language. But these three distinctive accents joined in a singular verb. God has spoken. So they said these three descriptions or names of God Mighty One, God, the Lord, can refer to the Holy Trinity. And since 
it used a verb singular that is the one, the unity, three in one. So this verse carries the mystery of the Holy Trinity. However, most commentators believe that all the names Mighty One, God the Lord, refer to Christ, the Son of God, who is our righteousness, and to whom he being the eternal Logos spoke here. Because the Son is the Word of God, is the Logos. So has he spoken refers to the Word of God, the Son of God. He has spoken all things out of nothing in creation. In creation, he said, let be light. Then there was light. So out of nothing, he spoke, then the things were created. So the Mighty One, God, the Lord, has spoken and called the earth from the rising of the sun to its going down. So he addressed all the inhabitants of the world. This call is made to all the earth from one end to the other. All should appear before him. This verse actually is applied to the first coming of Jesus Christ. Because Christ, on his birth, or on his arrival to the world, has spoken the words of his gospel. And he has called, he invited all the earth to hear him, to hear the good news of salvation. Then in verse 2, he told us from where God has spoken, from where. So verse 2, he said, out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God will shine forth. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God will shine forth. So, the place where God began to speak was Zion, as we read in Isaiah 2, verse 3, For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And the Lord Jesus Christ was born there in Bethlehem. The place where he was supposed to reside and where he would now sit in judgment. That is Zion. So the perfection of beauty out of Zion, the perfection of beauty. So perfection of beauty can refer to Zion. And if it refers to Zion, which is Jerusalem, because the temple of God is there. And this is called God's dwelling place. So God's perfect beauty shines forth from Zion. The beauty of God, his perfect beauty, shines from Zion. Why Zion? St. John Chrysostom is telling us why Jerusalem, why Zion. He told us from there, from Zion, 
the apostles were dispatched to the whole world. In Zion, there occurred the resurrection, there the ascension, there the prelude and commencement of our salvation. There the ineffable teaching began to be proclaimed. There the Father was first revealed in baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the only begotten known, he was revealed to us, the Son. And the wonderful grace of the Spirit given. Considering all this, the inspired author called it God's beautiful uh, maturity or the perfection of beauty. It is his goodness and loving kindness and his beneficence to all the people. That's why he called the Zion the perfect beauty. According to the Septuagint version, beauty is referring to God, but in Hebrew, beauty appears to Zion. And Zion actually is a symbol of the church. So the spiritual beauty of the church reveals God's beauty for God purchased the church by his precious blood. And we can call the church the perfect beauty because here we take communion, here we are baptized, here our sins are forgiven, here we are in unity with God. Other commentators said the perfect beauty is Christ. Christ is the perfection of beauty. As we read in Psalm 45, He is fairer than the sons of men. He is more glorious than the angels in heaven. So the glory of all the divine perfections is obvious and seen in His work of salvation as well in Himself, in His character. Verse 3, if verse 1 and 2 speak about the first coming, verse 3 speak about his second coming for judgment. So our God shall come in the future and shall not keep silent. A fire shall devour before him and it shall be very Temptuous all around him. So in verse 3, the psalmist is foretelling us about the second coming of Christ. In his first coming, he came veiled in a form of a servant, in meekness, in order to redeem us by his death and passion. But in the second coming, he will come manifestly and revealed in all his power, not in a humble manger, but in the clouds of heaven. And when he comes, he shall not keep silent as in the first coming. In the first coming, we read about him, he was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. 
that's the first coming. But the second coming, he shall not keep silent. He is coming to judge the world. He will come with a trumpet and with a dreadful noise, not silent, as we read in Matthew 24, 31, and he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Also we read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, not silent, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. In 1 Corinthians 15:52, at the last trump, for the trump will sound. Then he said, a fire shall devour before him. Which fire? A fire shall devour before him. This referring to the end of the world and end of everything in the world. As St. Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, But the day of the Lord, the day of judgment, will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat, both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. So the meaning here is, a fire shall devour before him to destroy everything on the face of the earth. And it shall be very tenuous all around him. The whole world will be in confusion. Some commentators said it is the fire of divine word making its way among the Gentiles consuming their idolatry, worshiping of idols. Like on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit descended like fire, and this fire spread to the whole world and changed the world from idol worshippers to Christian. Others said, this fire is the fire of divine wrath coming upon the Jews and the ungodly, and it may be literally understood of the fire that consumed their city and the temple, which happened actually in year 70 AD, as predicted by Zechariah chapter 11 and verse 1. St. Augustine says, He that came hidden in the first coming shall come manifest. Hidden he came in the first coming to be judged. Manifest in the second coming, he shall come to judge. Hidden he came in the first coming that he might stand before a judge like Pontius Pilate, like Herod. Manifest he shall come that he may be the judge, even the judge of judges. Verse 4, He shall call to the heaven from above and to the earth that they may judge his people. So heaven and earth are called upon 
to come together as witnesses of his judgment, by which he will separate the faithful believers from the hypocrite, the wheat from the chaff. So in the day of judgment, there will be an immense crown present. He shall call to heaven from above. So who will come from heaven? All the angels will be gathered. As we read in Matthew 25:31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him. So in the day of the judgment, all the angels, all the angels will be there to witness the judgment. And to the earth, he will call the earth too. This great assembly, heaven and earth, will be called to judge his people. Heaven above and earth beneath shall unite in condemning sin. As we read in Matthew 25:32, to separate the good from the bad, he will separate them from one another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. Also we read in Matthew 13:49, so it will be at the end of the age, the angels, that's heaven, will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just. So why the angels will come from heaven and the earth to separate the godly from the non-ungodly? That's why in verse 5, God is saying to the heaven and earth, gather my saints together to me, those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. Gather my saints and make them stand on my right hand as we read in Matthew. This command is addressed to the angels who are God's ministers of judgment. My saints, my faithful members of God's church. And then in verse, uh, in the continuation of the verse, he explains to us who are the saints. Those who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. This explains who the saints are. So gather my saints. These words are spoken by Christ to the angels to gather his elect one. So first of all, God will call to him those who have shown their relationship to him by a sacrifice. Those who have made a covenant with me made a covenant with me by sacrifice. In the day of our baptism, when we renounce Satan and then we turn to the east to confess the Lord Jesus Christ, this day we made a covenant to be children of God, to serve him all the days of our life, to worship him, to be in his kingdom. And this covenant is renewed Every time we eat from his body and drink from his blood, when he says, drink, this is my blood of the new covenant. So this sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ and the blood of this sacrifice is the blood of the covenant. 
So, those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. Sacrifice denotes first the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. Take drink. This is the blood of my new covenant. But sacrifice can also meaning to sacrifice our life, to carry our cross. So, God makes it clear that he is not interested in a sacrifice that is void of holy lifestyle, which does not reflect a relationship with him. That's why he did not say the sins are those who offer sacrifice only. But he mentioned two things. Number one, made a covenant. Covenant means to have a holy, ungodly relationship with me by a sacrifice, by their worship. So God will accept those who have made a covenant with him through sacrifice and through good work. Those who have demonstrated that they are in relationship with him by sacrificing. And also by accepting the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 6. Let the heavens declare his righteousness. For God himself is judge. Selah. God called the heaven to be witness. So nobody can accuse God of impartiality or favoritism. God doesn't need witness, but the heavens will declare his righteousness. So the psalmist here, hear the heaven, which have been gathered to witness the trial, the judge, proclaim the justice of God as a guarantee of the impartiality of his judgment. God most certainly will judge the earth, including all the wicked, and he will do so in righteousness. So it is an inspired prophecy of that day when the Lord shall discern between those who fear him and those who do not fear him. Then Selah, when you read this word, it is just a pause, a pause for reflection and meditation. And after he spoke about the judgment day, so the psalmist here is calling us to pause in reverent prostration and in humble prayer when we remember the day of judgment. St. Augustine said about the righteousness of God, Truly this righteousness of God to us, the heavens have declared, and also the evangelists have foretold. Through them we have heard that some will be on the right hand, as we read in Matthew, some will be on the right hand of God, to whom the householder God says, Come, you blessed of my father, receive. Receive what? The kingdom, a kingdom of heaven. So St. Augustine is asking, I will receive a kingdom in return for what? To receive a kingdom in return for what? 
in return for for what thing? I was hungry and you give me to eat. So St. Augustine pauses here and says, what's so valueless, what's so earthly as to break bread to the hungry at so much is value, this is so much is valued, we will receive the kingdom of heaven in return for breaking bread for hungry. The heavens shall declare his righteousness. For God is judge, truly. Judge, God is judge, not confounding, but severing. For the Lord knows them that are his. Verse 7. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, and I will testify against you. I am God, your God. So, the previous verses from 1 to 6 are designed to bring the scene of judgment before us. What's going to happen? The serious and grave scene now opens and God now speaks. God himself speaks from verse 7. He speaks to his people, Israel, and who are the new Israel, the Christian, beginning his judgment among them. As St. Paul said to Timothy, the judgment will start from the house of God. The faithful are called to receive a warning so that everyone may prepare himself. So while we the believer, the Christian, we still here on earth, God is giving us a warning so we will be prepared. And this particular address is made to the people of God, to the believers. Because the purpose of the psalmist was to rebuke the customary tendency to rely on the outward form of religion, while its spirituality and its power is denied. And until now, I think we need this rebuke. Many of us, the relationship with God to come to church on Sunday, attend the liturgy, take communion, and that's it. So that's exactly the our form of religion. While the spirituality of our faith and its power is denied. At the end of the verse 7, God said, I am God, your God. This is enough reason why we should hear him when he speaks. He is our God. I am God, your God. He is our God from whom we have the strongest assurance that he knows how and also wishes to give us the most useful instruction. He knows how we should live our life. And also, because he is our God, he wants to give us the most useful instruction. I am God, your God, means he loves us. 
and therefore he wants to teach us what's most useful. St. Augustine says, He shall come and shall not keep silence in the second coming. See how that even now, if you hear, he is not silent. So St. Augustine saying he is not silent only when he comes in the second coming, but even now he is not silent. He is speaking. For if you do not hear, I will not speak to you, God is saying. If you are not going to hear me, I will not speak to you. For if you don't hear, even though I shall speak, it will not be to thee. What about God speaking, like in the gospel? But if we don't hear it, then God is not speaking to us. Because we are not hearing. When then shall I speak, God is saying to you, asking each one of us, when then shall I speak to you? If you hear, then he will speak to us. Then if you hear, you will be my people. So as if St. Augustine is saying, if you hear the word of God, and listen attentively, and do them, then you are among his family, his people. If you don't, then you are not among his people. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. Hear first, and I will speak. O Israel, and I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Then he starts to tell us what he wants to testify. God is saying in verse 8, I will not rebuke you for your sacrifices or your burnt offerings, which are continually before me. As if God in our time, he will tell us, I will not rebuke you for coming every Sunday and taking communion and putting your donation. I'm not going to rebuke you for this. So God is not against the outward expression of religion. But God is against if all what you do is the outward expression of, uh, of religion. You fast, but fasting is just changing food. But there is no uh, spirituality connected with this fast. So God did not rebuke his people for offering sacrifices. He commanded them to do so. But God will not rebuke them for the neglect of the outward ritual of religion, of sacrifices and offering, because they are, which are continually before me. They actually offer these sacrifices continually before God. So they are sufficiently numerous, always to be found on the altar. In the Old Testament, the daily morning and evening sacrifice have been regularly offered, and the national worship thus kept up without a break. God does not look for sacrifices as if he wanted them. He rather looks for inner virtue, consisting in faith, hope, love, and obedience. Such sacrifices 
are acceptable to God. And another reason that God does not require sacrifice from us is that he is the Lord of everything. And if he wants sheep or cattle or birds or anything else, he can easily have them without any trouble. He is God. He is their sovereign master. And God doesn't want animal sacrifices because animal sacrifices cannot redeem us. And his son came and offered himself as a sacrifice once for all. He is not interested in receiving more animal offering. That's why he said, I will not take a bull from your house nor goats out of your folds. As we read in verse 9, I will not take a bull from your house nor goats out of your folds. In verse 9 he is saying, I am the sovereign Lord. For every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. Everything are mine. So I'm not waiting. If you think I'm waiting for your animal offering, no, I I am not. I know all the birds of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field are mine. Everything belongs to me. So this was a rebuke of empty repetition of religious ceremonies. Every morning they offered sacrifice, every evening they offered sacrifices, and they repeated this. So it's an empty repetition of religious ceremonies. This shows that the sacrifices of the law of the Old Testament were symbolic of a higher and spiritual thing and animal sacrifices were not pleasing to God except under their symbolic aspect. They were a symbol for the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we sacrifice to God, we don't give him something he doesn't have. Our sacrifice is for our sake, not for his. When you offer your body as a sacrifice in fasting, it doesn't benefit God anything. It's for our benefit, not for Him. When we give God from our money, it's not for His benefit. He has everything, but it's for our benefit. As He said, the cattle on a thousand hills, this may mean either the cattle that roamed by thousands on the hills or the cattle on endless hills. So all creation is God's, known to him and owned by him to be dealt with at his pleasure. God will deal with them at his pleasure. How then should he need gift from us, from men? God doesn't need anything from men either for his necessities or for for his convenience. And that's because he neither hunger nor thirst, as we read in verse 12. If I were hungry, 
I will not tell you. For the world is mine. And all its fullness. Will I eat the flesh of bulls? Or drink the blood of goats? So, if God needs anything, although he doesn't need, (coughs) his wants would be at once supplied because he is the Lord of all things. He could provide for himself out of his own possessions. He would not plead to us, to his own creatures. So, in verse 12 he said, For the world is mine and all its fullness, all its fullness, all that fills the world, all that exists upon it, the whole is at God's disposal. To all that the earth produces, he has a right. So all the production of the earth, God owns him. So, can anyone suppose it possible that God, the Lord of heaven and earth, the invisible author of all things, both visible and invisible, need material sustenance and can condescend to find any sustenance in the flesh of bulls and blood of goats as he said will I eat the flesh of bulls and drink the blood of goats St. Augustine says you have heard what of us he requires he does not require from us animal sacrifices if of such things you were thinking if you think that God needs this animal sacrifices Now withdraw your thoughts from such things. No, you need to change your mind. Think not to offer God any such thing. If thou hast a fat bull, kill for the poor, give it to the poor. Let them eat the flesh of bulls. God doesn't need it to offer it as sacrifice in the Old Testament. So, what God needs... In verse 14 and 15, he's telling us what he needs from us. Offer to God thanksgiving. That is the sacrifice he wants from us. And pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. So, Having established the insufficiency of sacrifice without inner submission of love, the psalmist now teaches us that it is by such inner acts of virtue that God is most pleased. God pleased when we give him thanks and when we praise him. And that it is through such acts we can be saved in the last judgment. The one offering acceptable to God is praise and thanksgiving 
out of a pure, a life of obedience and a living trust in him. When, when we come to the church, we come to offer praises of thanksgiving. And this is the acceptable sacrifice before God. When it comes from pure heart, a life of obedience and a living trust in God. God wants his people to present their sacrifices as the tributes of their gratitude to them, to him. Pay your vows to the Most High. You vowed on the day of baptism when you looked at the East to live in godliness, to live in holiness. So these are the vows. Pay to him love, devotion, true service, and worship. And when trouble comes, when troubles come, as he said, call upon me in the day of trouble. Don't seek human help without coming to me. Don't rely on connections without coming to me. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. So when trouble comes, don't trust people for relief as hypocrites generally do, but give glory to God and rely upon his promises and expect help from him by a deep and heartfelt prayer. Yes, God may use some people to help you. That's true. But if I go to the people without going to God first, then I trust people more than God. But I should go to God And then God will actually use these people to fulfill his will. God takes pleasure and prefers the prayer of a broken heart, as David said to him in Psalm 51, to the burnet offering. He told him, if you want burnet offering, I would have given them. But the sacrifice So God is a broken spirit, a broken heart. Prayer will honor God and grateful perception of his answering mercy will also glorify him. When we pray to God and go to him in the day of trouble, this will honor him. And also when he answers our prayer by his mercies and we give praises of thanksgiving in gratefulness, this also glorify him. It is a beautiful promise. Call me, call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you. It's a promise. Call upon me, I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. That is the offering of thanksgiving. Let me conclude our Bible study tonight here by St. John Chrysostom. He said, Why you ask? Did he say, call on me? So St. John Chrysostom said, When you are in the day of trouble, ask. And if anyone asked you why you are asking God, because he told us, call on me. Why does he wait to be called upon upon us? 
somebody may say, God knows I'm in trouble. Why he wants me to call upon him? Why he doesn't deliver me even without calling upon him? St. John Chrysostom answered, because he wishes to achieve a closer relationship with us. So he wants us to call upon him because the purpose may be in, in our mind, I want him to solve this problem. But God, he has something beyond solving this problem. He wants a closer relationship with us and a more ardent love for him by giving and calling and receiving. Give him glory, call upon him, receive from him, answer in the day of trouble. We'll stop here at verse 15. This psalm is a beautiful psalm. Uh, Explain to us the day of judgment and what God is expecting from us. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.